This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Politics Out the Boring Bits, Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. You can listen for free live on your DAB radio. Just ask your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode is Wednesday, so yes, it's PMQ's Unpacked. So of course, I'm joined by Tim Shipman to pause the action live in the comments. But a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Giles Cotton off of the Times saying he'd been listening to us pausing the action live in the House of Commons and quite enjoying it. So we've got him in to join us this week. So we've got Charles Coven giving his take on what's going on. And then, of course, Lama Spirit rounds up the best of the rest. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Wednesday, it's time for these two. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yeah, not seen you for a couple of weeks. Nice to see you both. Alice and Robert both here. <laughs> yeah, Hi, Matt. Yeah. Well, I had a bad morning, actually. Are you having a bad yeah. morning? Why are you having a bad morning? I had a sick dog. It's oh. not good when you go down for your cup of tea, I have to oh. say. No. Oh. It's not the best. No. But not as bad as being on a cruise across the Atlantic yeah. and being ill. We were here last week, but you weren't. That's yeah. why we haven't seen you. In fact, this time last week, we were bracing ourselves for the yeah. big Wednesday storm. Yeah, and we were laughing about it on the radio. Yeah. It was rough. We thought we really wanted yeah. to go, actually, and now we don't, do we? Not really. No. I would recommend really. it. is still, aside from the queasiness, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, but the end of November? Can't yeah. It, yeah. I'd do it if it was, like, June. Yeah, there's a reason why they, they, yes. they do it, I think, off-season. Yes. Yeah. But you get to go to New York, don't you? Did, yeah. We had 12 hours in New York before we turned around and came That's back. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, good. Uh, right, let's, we, let's turn our attention to what's on, what's on the minutes today. Oh, yes, <laughs> funerals. Yes, Alice has written, Alice about, has written about funerals because none of people aren't planning a, planning them enough or even thinking about them. And was it um, only was it only half of people even want a funeral? Yes, yeah, fewer than half of people actually want a funeral. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be a religious funeral, but it's any kind of send off celebration, and that just seemed really sad because actually I think when you're planning one, you can see if you're dying or you're elderly, you probably think it is a waste of money. You want to hand the money on, but I think for people who are left, actually funerals or some kind of marking of their death is really important. Yeah. And actually, my parents died in the last couple of years and I would say, you know, one was in lockdown, so you didn't get much of a funeral. And the other one, it was much easier if you had people to talk to and chat to. And it was, you know, there's a lot of sandwich making and a lot of cooking and a lot of, 
Uh, but that rich sense of ritual and something to do really helped. I is, think you know, um, I think yeah. I think it's quite important. I was quite surprised. I wondered whether people had slightly misinterpreted the question as "Do you want to die?" Forty-seven <laughs> like, percent. Do you want a funeral want like now? But then I was half amazed. People don't. I was yeah. amazed by that because yeah. it was like no, not just a religious ceremony, but any form of any funeral ceremony, party, mm-hmm. anything. Because I thought people could say, "Oh yeah, I just want to have a big party," but they weren't even saying that. Yeah, they just wanted to slip away and. Which is sort of slightly impractical as well, because you've got to, you've still got to be kind of something's got to happen. Something's got to happen. No, yeah. but that's quite easy because you can just do one through the post. So basically, now for you know, need a big jiffy bag. <laughs> exactly, that's it is right. quite big, isn't it? Less than a thousand quid actually. You can now get it online, that's and then they just take away the body from the hospital or wherever it is, and then they just oh, take it to the crematorium. A friend, a friend of mine had his. Back. Friend of mine had his. Uh, was put up in a firework, and my son, who was very small at the time, said, "Well, it must have been a very big firework." <laughs> we still had to explain. Ashes, it was his ashes. Yeah. yeah. Ashes as well, that's yeah. a good idea, though. Yeah, it is quite good. Hunter S. Thompson pioneered that. In the, he, he's, he was the first time I read about that, somebody doing that, going up in a massive yeah. rocket. But we all now want to be yeah. cremated. I mean, a lot of people do. So I don't. It used to be before. I did, well, I didn't. And I think I might be, I might be on the cusp of changing my mind. No. I won't yeah, have... I get very claustrophobic, so I wouldn't want to be in a coffin. Well, I don't want to be alive. <laughs> I don't want to be buried alive. Yeah, we'd all be a bit claustrophobic if I we did it alive. If I'm thoroughly dead, I want to be buried in do a mass, yeah, above ground. In so sarcophagus. my parents- above ground in a sarcophagus, but an enormous, yeah, massive one in the back garden. Yeah. I've told the children, yeah. I've left quite detailed instructions. Yeah, Mark. have you? No, I haven't yet. But I've talked. I've talked. You've about told it. us now. So that's yeah, fine. yeah. Now my parents wanted Mausoleum. to be together, and I quite like the idea that the ashes were mixed. But then they put the dogs in as well because no one could quite think what to do with the dogs' ashes because we'd had them there so long. And there was that sense that actually my husband said to me when he read the article this morning, "You know, the, we're not the putting teapot. the pets." Yeah, he was like, "I don't want the pets." By the way, no. It's that great scene in Meet the Parents, isn't there, with the cat's ashes yeah. on, the, on, on, yeah, on the mantelpiece. But that's, I think that's the other thing is I think maybe partly because growing up, relatives who died, we, you know, we went to the church. Yeah. House, and I thought that's what you did. I you think know, and so. Being buried sort of makes sense. There's also something about urns of ashes in any sitcom or film, yes. or whatever. Something bad always happens. I yeah. Thought it seemed impractical having yeah. an urn of ashes. Big Lebowski when they, they all blow, always blow back in his face. They don't always they? get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. I, I'm not sure about urns of ashes, but yeah. I am sure about death rituals. They're there for a reason. Yeah. They've been there for thousands of years. And I think if something's been there for thousands of years, there's probably a good reason that, mm. we, that we have it. It's also that a, sense a, that, a, that when if people come, they can swap stories. So actually, it's, you know, if your parents have been ill or your family yeah. or, you know, particularly if they're young, they all want to swap stories. And I think there is, it sort of makes you feel better yeah. about the whole situation. They're and everyone's always very nice to each other at a funeral. Yeah, and they're generally they? cathartic. Mm. And, uh, well, and it sort of gives you a, a sort of rhythm in the days after a death. Well, quite. You... I mean, for my, I remember my, my dad died suddenly and the, it's a cliche to say it, but the, the worst part was not the lead up to the funeral. The Because the, the, then you've got, you, you're all busy doing mm. that and there's a certain kind of drama to it, if you like, and the family's all getting together. Getting together. The worst you? part is after that because yeah, then yeah. reality sets in. But I think uh, they're very, they are cathartic and they're, uh, you know, they're there for a reason and I think people are making a mistake yeah. if they think they don't want one. On the other hand, you did say they cost an average of £5,000. So. Well, that is only if you really yeah. ham it up. So I think actually yeah. you don't need to have vast amounts of Is plans. that when you've you got like need... kick-cupping horses? And... Yeah, you don't need a lot of that stuff. So I think actually you can yeah. make it cheaper because people don't right. expect much more than a cup, sort of cup of tea, cake, no. do they? And, and actually I think part of doing that is good for you as well, actually, is just sort of setting stuff out. It's kind of, it's, it's feeling I... that it is an occasion, isn't it? I agree. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And actually yeah. I had one of my... Funniest afternoon, afternoons at a funeral directors. 
we went to all, you know do some de- and it was just there's something about funeral directors mm. the sort of mock Victorian yes guy yes. was wearing like a very big sort of yeah. um, morning suit which was like a bit too big for him yeah and there was lots of bits of paper on this big desk and he's the phone kept ringing. <laughs> And <laughs> I will tell. I will tell the story. Yeah. Uh, twice the phone rang. The first time he had it on answer phone. I know the first time it rang, he picked it up, and he just went, "Not now, David." And then put the phone down because <laughs> it was like his yeah. partner or his yeah. dad or whatever. And the second time he, he took it on answer phone. So yeah. Ring, ring, ring. Hello, you know the funeral directors. And this woman's voice just there was this little pause. I said, "Is that the funeral directors?" And he said, "Yeah." And he said, um, "Would you be able to help with?" Just a quick disposal of a <laughs> body. <laughs> it was like, what on earth has gone on there? And he said, "Yes, we can. We'll come back." And there's this whole business sort of sitting yeah. in the in the room mm. with this sort of really yeah. heavy, oppressive Victorian, to... and this woman phoning up and just wanted. I mean, it sounded basically like there'd been a murder. Yeah, and she just wanted some assistance. Yes, with disposing of the body. I uh, I had a friend who's uh, when I was at primary school, his dad was the local undertaker, and we were at his birthday party once, and the phone rang, and his dad answered it and he said yes oh oh i'm so sorry oh that's terrible how tall was he (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it takes a certain time also it's really a british that sort of kind of sense of humor about the whole thing and i like the urns i like the idea that my urns are going to go around my eldest said you know actually the reason that he wants me to scatter them all around the world is then he gets a free holiday and you you, you get that sense don't you that you you can take them about you're not actually allowed to take them through airports but quite a lot of people do and and it's not as if it's dangerous taking you know a few ashes around is it there are quite a lot of them as well that was the only thing i would say is i think you'll be quite surprised by how many ashes you produce They've had to stop doing that on scattering them on football pitches, haven't they? Because they're ruining the turf. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah most grounds don't allow it now. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, loads of people are getting in touch about this. Uh, Dee says, my late husband had an online cremation. He wasn't religious and didn't want a big funeral. I assume, again, that's... that's a, <laughs> I don't know how that works online. Uh, his ashes are currently in a cupboard with the ashes of our dog. I'm hoping to go down to Cornwall, where he was born, to scatter him at sea. I'm worried about the dog, though. She hated water. Nice. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah good. Uh, Catherine says, we are already terrible at dealing with death these days. No proper mourning, no way of showing people you're no. grieving. Funerals are a huge part of the process of accepting the loss of a loved one. The sandwiches, cups of tea, hugs and sharing of memories are important. Yeah, totally right. I actually quite like the idea of wearing funeral outfits almost, because the problem mm. is, if you are grieving, it's very difficult to tell anyone you are, and you have these very banal conversations. That yeah. actually, oh, in a way, it would be easier to know, wouldn't it? There's no... Yeah. I mean, smart. The words "smart casual" are terrifying enough. I'm trying to work out what that means. But when the the invitation to funeral says no dark clothes, yeah, like, I don't like that. Oh, like, what ce- do you do in that it's a celebration? It's not, yeah, an yeah, awful, and and all that that awful poem about him. I haven't. I've just stepped into the next room yeah. and stuff. But what do you wear when they say? Because you, you know, it's you know, you're going to a funeral. It's dark suit, dark tie. Once you start getting into bright colours and, you know... Well, actually, yeah. Deborah James, when she died last year, the bowel babe um, yeah. uh, cancer campaigner, she said to me she what she wanted before she died. She wanted a black and white funeral, and I quite liked mm. that. I thought that was quite clever. And she mm. organised the whole thing because she had small children. She wanted to do it completely so that her husband wouldn't have to do anything at all. Yeah. And I thought that was really brave. Yeah, I, I haven't quite so. got that far. No, but yeah. And you are doing it for the sort of children and the grandchildren. I mean, if you're... I mean, that was Even the point elderly, in the end of my column person. is that you have to try and do a bit of it yourself so that the yeah. next generation don't have to. Yeah, yeah. 
And a bit of a eulogy as well. I mean, I think that's important. It's a, it's yeah. To mark it. Yeah, to send it. And also, it's yeah. that whole thing, isn't it? It's like sort of, particularly, you know, I think as you get older, you have fewer of those opportunities. The sort of, you know, like weddings are the only other time often that people say nice things about yeah. each other. Yeah. Uh, weddings, big birthdays, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a good opportunity to do it. But maybe you should do it when you're alive. Uh, David says, I want to be late for my own funeral and I want to be buried, not cremated, but ultimately, I won't care. My family should do what works for them. And somebody mm. else says, here's a tip. Funeral directors seem to mark up orders of service by 250%. If one goes to the local print shop, they are set up to do them. Nice. There we are. Excellent That's news, news you can use. Uh, lovely. Uh, Robert, yeah. uh, you've been writing this week about going on the anti-Semitism march and how you're now a hero. The anti-anti-Semitism march. The anti-anti-Semitism march. Anti -anti it wasn't march, in favour of anti-Semitism. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It was a very different one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did, I did, it, was, it was peculiar because I'd written, a, I'd written a column about going to see the film that the uh, Israelis have put out the, from the, mm. using the raw footage yeah. from October the 7th. And I wrote about that. Uh, that had been published just a couple of days before. Then I went on the march on Sunday, and I was—I uh, mean, I was gratified and and flattered, but also uh, uh, surprised by the, the 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 gratitude of the the people, principally Jewish people, on the anti-anti-Semitism march on Sunday. And it made me—and I, I wasn't, you know, in any way ungrateful for it. It was—it was—it was great. Uh, but it made me think uh, how uh, isolated and beleaguered uh, the British Jewish community is feeling at the moment. Uh, that they were so grateful that somebody had just sort of written uh, truthfully and yeah. kind of reminded people of why this war started. Uh, I thought your most amazing comment was the fact that when you saw the film that, that they were actually talking about Jewish people rather than about Israelis. Well, that, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's what no one else pointed out. No, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very much worth saying that that, 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 I mean, it's been said before, it's worth repeating that those events were nothing really much to do with Palestinian aspirations or the legitimate Palestinian claims for a, a state. Mm. Uh, it was about pure genocidal racism, really. They talked about Jews and they talked about uh, killing them. They yeah. didn't really talk about... Free Palestine. And nobody mentioned the word Palestine in the whole in the whole film. Uh, nobody really mentioned the word Israel. Uh, it was just a it was a, it was a, it was a, 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 just a, a murderous pogrom. And I said as much in my piece, and people were very grateful for me saying that. And it sort of struck me that uh, it's that pro the, pro the, the, the sort of proposition that the attack was anti-Semitic and that we should be opposed to that shouldn't be a controversial one. Yeah, yeah. But it has become controversial. Did you uh, find there were that many young people? Because my a couple of my children went and said that it was actually more elderly. No, there was a lot. There were yeah, a lot of elderly. Elderly, yeah. Well, you are elderly, Robert. <laughs> there were a lot of uh, there are a lot of people my age and some people who are elderly, and a lot of people who were younger than me. It was an enormous turnout. I mean, there are two hundred and seventy thousand uh, Jews in England and Wales, and. There were about eighty, maybe eighty, a hundred thousand people on that march, principally Jewish people. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at about a quarter of the uh, population yeah, yeah. of the Jewish population of the country. Or if you just look at London, it's probably about half of half of Britain, England, and Wales Jews live in London, and about half of them were there. Yeah, uh, and they were just, I mean, they were saying whatever your view on the reactions that the the reaction and the. Uh, of the and the actions of the Israeli government subsequently, uh, which you may or may not agree with, I guess you'd find that probably the whole a very widespread of opinion even on that march. Yeah, uh, we're 
they're suffering from a rising anti-Semitism as a result of it, and they and they, it was a very dignified protest against that. Do you think it's become? It was seen as controversial because it was seen as the other march. It was. Yeah, I mean, a, I think in opposition to the already controversial. Yes, in a in a in, a, in, a, in something in that's become marches. horribly that is horribly polarized. Yeah. Uh, it was it, yes, you could. Its opponents, if you like, would see it as a pro-Israel march, and there were a lot, a lot of the younger people there were there with wearing Israeli flags and so on as, as kind of cloaks. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but it is possible. It to shouldn't have, be controversial. To both marches to say that you were, you you know you you you. Uh, it would have been theoretically support. possible to be a member of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign exactly, and be on that march, yeah. although. That's theoretically possible. As things stand at the moment, the way that this debate has polarised and with some of the statements coming out of the pro-Palestinian side of things, then they weren't... Well, they put it this way, they weren't there. Yeah. And neither was... Neither, as I mentioned in my piece, was was the Labour Party very prominent. I mean, usually on these occasions, you see trade union banners, you see see Labour Party figures. Yeah. They were conspicuous by their absence. Yeah. And I thought that was a bit of a disgrace, really. The the, the fact that the, the left was fairly much officially unrepresented and that uh, protesting about anti-Semitism is left to Boris Johnson and Tom Tugendhat and, uh, and, a, and a bunch of uh, Again, but that Jewish only adds to the, the sense of polarisation, whereas it is yeah. entirely possible to want to see an end to the suffering in Palestine, Quite. but also oppose anti-Semitism. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, but neither, neither proposition should be controversial. That was my point. Exactly, that's completely right. Yeah. Uh, well, you can read both those pieces, of course, online as part of your Time subscription. Now, let's turn our attention to a story on the front page of The Times today. Uh, calls to tighten up the rules governing foreign workers coming to the UK. It looks at something called the shortage occupation list. So where there's a shortage of a particular skill, employers can bring people from abroad and pay them less than the going industry rate in order to plug those gaps. Well, the list includes care workers and engineers, but also graphic designers, arts officers and ballet dancers. Well, do we really have a shortage of ballet dancers and what should we do about it? Deborah Crane is the chief dance critic at The Times and joins us now. Hi, Deborah. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, whatever. <laughs> what do we, Deborah, Deborah answer, do we have a shortage of ballet dancers? Well, first of all, no, I don't think there's a shortage of dancers. The specialist schools in this country are turning them out faster than we can employ them and a lot of their graduates are going abroad to find jobs. So, no. There's not a shortage, but I tell you what I think has happened. I may be wrong, but I suspect that the arts world has lobbied to get dancers onto this shortage occupation list in order to facilitate the visa process, which has become unwieldy, incredibly expensive um, for any ballet director looking to hire talent from Europe, because, of course, Brexit you know, finished that off. No, it's not a question about plugging gaps. It's not a question about numbers. With dancers, you know, the director of a ballet company, they want the dancers they want. It's about talent, and that's mm. a highly subjective criteria. So saying, okay, let's have more British dancers, it, it's got to be the right dancers. It's, it's not numbers. It's definitely about the it, taste of directors. But is it, is it then we've got plenty of British ballet dancers, but they're not very good compared to oh, foreign oh, dancers? Hang on, hang on. No, no. I'm not <laughs> going to say that. Not for a second. I remember the days when the Royal Ballet had one British dancer in its principal ranks. Today, there are half a dozen. So clearly there's a lot of talent out there and it's rising to the top. No, I really think that this whole thing is a bit of a (laughs) non-starter. What do you think, Robert? Uh, I I guess I'm going to go with Deborah. She's the chief dance critic. Uh, (laughs) It's about bringing... Yeah, it's about... It's like football, bringing in talent, isn't it? Exactly, uh, uh, exactly. 
and uh, there's but we've got some of our people. Money, guys. Football has more money, so yeah. they can afford all the expensive visa lawyers and everything. You know, but we, we, it's but, not rich. <laughs> but it's about just free. Move. I mean, we've got people. There's a there's a, I think there's a guy from Hull who was in the Kirov in the Kirov Ballet. I've read about yes. him. We've we've written yes, about yes. him. Absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, what's the problem? Of course, it should be. I've got, if, but there is also an issue, isn't there, that we're actually, we aren't training all those sort of people. So I interviewed Wayne McGregor, who is like the best choreographer, I think, in the world almost now. And he's the choreographer for the Royal Ballet oh. and Deborah must know him. And he's, he's phenomenal. But, you know, where he went and trained, which was a dance school up in Leeds, they, they just don't have that anymore. They got rid of it. So there's a lot of stuff that's got rid of that isn't sort of the very top where you can't rise through. And I think we're very anti-art subjects now. We're very anti all these subjects. But obviously they do provide jobs. So it's quite odd if we're saying, you know, we don't want people to go into the arts and we don't want people to do all this. Well, we're actually then employing people from abroad to be arts counsellors or to, you know, to do graphic design. So I think we're giving really mixed messages to children mm. here. It's a massive employer, that's for sure. Well, the uh, other thing, the other thing I wonder about, if, if there was a shortage, maybe mm. the government only had themselves to blame. When two or three years ago they put up that advert of a ballet dancer. <laughs> Saying Fatima's next job could be in cyber. She just doesn't know it yet. Yeah. And they should have tried yeah. to encourage people in the arts to reskill and leave. Well, maybe. Yeah, I, was, I was perplexed by that advert because it struck me that Fatima had a pretty good job already. Yeah. Being well, a ballet dancer. If she's the already... problem with that ad was, though, it implied that everyone in the arts, you know, exemplified by ballet dancers, was pursuing a luxury hobby mm -hmm. and not yeah. a real job. And that's very offensive to the people who work hard in the arts to yeah. bring billions of pounds into the economy every year and have trained hard all their lives to achieve perfection. But Deborah, right. how much would you be paid normally if you were in Ooh, the, the Royal Ballet or you were in one of the really big ballet companies? And not not well, just the principal, but even if you were, say, you were in the chorus, what would you be? I'm not sure it's called the chorus, actually. But what would you be paid? The ballet. The corps corps ballet. ballet. I actually don't know what they're paid. I mean, uh, they are in, act in equity, so they're unionised, so I presume they've got a fairly good deal. They're employed full-time. They get pension benefits, sick pay, wonderful injury treatment, so... They're very well looked after, but dancers incorporate, incorporate, encompass a huge number of things. You can be in a very tiny company earning the equity minimum and be employed four weeks of the year. So it's a very mm. variable profession. Admirable as well. Mm. I interviewed a guy called Jonathan Cope once. He was a um, ballet, mm. ballet yeah, he dancer. Was and he was fantastic. remembered, yes. Yeah, and I think he's the fittest person. In both well, senses of the word, actually. The fittest, <laughs> fittest person I've ever met. But they are incredibly yeah, it's extraordinary. Fit, yeah. Wow. Absolutely extraordinary specimen. And Deborah, yeah. given that Christmas is just around the corner, what should, if people want a bit of ballet this, this festive season, what, what's the best thing that's on? Well, there's, there's something virtually in every major city in the country. But if you want, if you can't get to a theatre on December 12th, go to your nearest cinema and see the Royal Ballet's uh, live transmission of The Nutcracker. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. I remember going and doing that in the cinema, actually, when my daughter was much smaller, and she, yeah. she absolutely loved it. Uh, Deborah, lovely to speak to you. Okay. Take, take care. care. Cheers. Bye bye. Deborah Crane, there, chief dance critic at the Times. Obviously, you can read in the Times every week. Uh, we've had another another message about funerals. Oh yeah. Tansy says, "I now ignore wear bright clothes instructions for funerals. After attending a funeral, we were told to wear Dundee United colours, <laughs> bright tangerine. I put on my brightest tangerine jumper. My heart sank when I took my seat in the church and realised everyone else had just worn a ribbon." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I looked as if I'd been tangoed. I felt yeah. embarrassed by my, uh, But my friend whose dad's funeral it was found it funny <laughs> on what was a difficult day for her. Dark colours only in the future. Yeah. That's like a friend of mine who likes having parties and telling one person that it's fancy dress. Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson there. You can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked.
the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at LutonRising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yeah, here we are then. Tim Shipman's the Sunday Times Chief Political Commentator is here. Tim, how are you? I'm very well indeed. And a little bit starstruck that Giles is joining us. Oh, don't give it away. I'm about, I was about to do a big no, build-up. I'm sorry. Sometimes it's just Tim Do you Tim not have any follow-through <laughs> listeners of your own? Sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's just Tim and I here, and sometimes we have guests in. Uh, we had a former tennis player and coach to Andy Moe and Emma Raducanu, Mark Petchy, who, who watched deputy PMQs with us, or as he put it... Second seed in a wild card, maybe. We had Peter Dixon from X Factor. Handbags are out now. Uh, we even had, in this very studio, Zippy from Rainbow. They're just shouting at each other, aren't they? I mean, I, I think they should be polite like me. <laughs> and this week we are joined by actual Giles Cohen. I was going to pour scorn on that roster of people and go, how can I follow that? And then I remembered, I, I heard the Zippy episode and that was absolutely rocket fuel political broadcasting. <laughs> that one was brilliant. You are definitely the best guest since Zippy. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm starstruck. I, I had, I'm not only starstruck, but relieved to see Tim. When you said you want to do PMQs next week, I thought he was on oh. holiday or something. And the, I was going to have no, to I'm explain not, what... I'm not that daft. <laughs> now, my wife has messaged me and made it very, very clear that I'm the third wheel in this particular enterprise today. So, uh, But the point is, you emailed me two weeks ago. So you were listening to the show. I, I do listen to the show. Yeah. I was saying to your producer. I, no, I, I mean, sorry, that's awful. That's like when sort of... You know, when, when sort of Clint Eastwood goes on, 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 on uh, Jonathan Ross and says, I actually listen to the show. No, of course, I mean, I always listen to Times Radio, but Wednesday is key for me. I Normally in the morning, I do stick an ad from a panel, and then I record my podcast, and then Wednesday's lunchtime. And I always travel off somewhere, and I always listen to this on the way. And it's everything I know about politics, I've learned from this show. So I don't know what I've got to feed back, really. But you were particularly taken a couple of weeks ago, because it was particularly bad. Rishi Sunak was in so much trouble all over the place with uh, the Suella Bravman stuff and the Rwanda business and all of that. And sort of Keir Starmer was just a bit rubbish. It was when he But we need to be careful because he's a close personal friend of yours, isn't he? Very close personal friend of mine. Uh, he spoke my name in a sauna. My name... <laughs> My name has been spoken by the leader of the opposition while naked. I don't know if his knackers were out. I can't vouch. But so you weren't there? 
I was not there. I have a neighbour who is, uh, he's a Jehovah's Witness and he's not madly in touch with the world generally, so he, you'd have to not be. He doesn't know really what I do. And he, he said to me, I didn't know you were a restaurant critic. And I said, really? And he said, yes, I was in the sauna yesterday with a man who said he was Keir Starmer. And I thought, <laughs> and then I realised he was. And he said, oh, you live in the same road as Giles Corrin, the restaurant critic. So literally my Jehovah's Witness neighbour in North London <laughs> has only learnt what I do because... Ghoulie to ghoulie with Keir in the, in the sauna on Highgate Road. Keir told him who I was. So, yeah, that's as close as it, as it gets. These are better Labour contacts than you and I, though. <laughs> well, we're all working on that. <laughs> um, very good. Uh, what do you think, Mike? What would you, if you were Keir Starmer today, what would you ask Rishi Sunak? Uh, I'd, I'd ask him if he knew about Giles Corrin, the restaurant critic, uh, in the... Sort of, well, no, it's, I, suppose, I suppose immigration, would he want to sort of paint him on... Or the Elgin marbles, or whether he's managed to... You know, he doesn't meet greet people for lunch, nice that he's made it here. Yeah. What do you think, Tim? I mean, as I say, I think there's got to be some marbles... Uh, there's got to be some marbles interplay today, hasn't there? Because it is odd what Sunak did. I mean... Yes, everybody gets hoity-toity about the marbles. Some people care more than others. But to cancel an actual meeting with the Prime Minister, apparently to score a political point against Keir Starmer, it'll be interesting to see if Sunak trots out the line he used last week about, well, you're just doing pointless political point scoring, which is sort of why we're here on a Wednesday lunchtime, isn't it, yeah. really? Also, I mean, in terms of if one of the big challenges of the leader of the opposition is making yourself look like a Prime Minister-in-waiting, which, which, which he doesn't score brilliantly well, Keir Starmer, although he is better... Being the guy who meets other prime ministers when the actual prime minister doesn't meet other prime ministers, it it's sort, sort of, of a gift, really. Yeah. You would think. I'm, I'm reminded as well. It was a, the marbles were a big thing with with Neil Kinnock. I think I probably first heard about it in the eighties. Never heard of the Elgin marbles. Kinnock made it a big thing. We've got to get the Elgin marbles back, and it was seen as a horribly lefty position then. Because what did he? He said it was like um, uh, a smile without a tooth, with a tooth missing. Is that what Kinnock said about it? Oh, well, I didn't listen past the headline. I'm, I'm pretty impressed <laughs> that I could remember back then. But yes, it does. It's been it's been a sort of Labour in opposition thing forever. Um, I'm surprised the Tory right aren't embracing this. They could get the Greeks to pay for the new royal yacht and then put the marbles on the yacht and deliver them to Athens. That might be a way. Quite heavy. You wouldn't get that in your, your luggage, would you? Have we got the marble sound effect just in case we uh, just in case there are any marbles? Very good. <laughs> Amazing. Very good. I see what uh, you did there. And we've got Keir Starmer, Marbles and Keir Starmer. What more do you want? And Giles Cohen and Tim Shipman. Uh, let's go live to the House of Commons then. Uh, we are live on Times Radio and on the Times Radio YouTube channel. This is question one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In an effort to hide from his failures, the Prime Minister spent this week arguing about an ancient relic that only a tiny minority of the British public have any interest in. Mr Speaker, that's enough about the Tory party. In 2019, they all promised the country that they would control immigration. Numbers will come down. The British people will be in control. How's it going? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, let me be crystal clear. The levels of migration... Far, the levels of migration are far too high, and I'm determined to bring them back down to sustainable levels. That's why we've asked the Migration Advisory Council to review certain elements of the system. We're reviewing those findings and we'll bring forward next steps. But earlier this year, we announced the toughest action ever taken to reduce legal migration. The effects of that action are yet to be felt, but will impact 
150,000 student dependents, and forecasts show that migration is likely to drop as a result. But all we've heard up until this moment from the honourable gentleman on this topic is a secret backroom deal with the EU that would see an additional 100,000 migrants here every year. So, what do we think of that joke then? Oh, he set it up nicely. I mean, he, no, you, it was a predictable joke. I was joke. excited. I thought, this is, this is yeah. Who? You're, who's the relative? Who's, who's it going to be? Who's who, it going to be? Right. Who's it going to be? And I, I, who, it must have been someone in the, you know, you're, you're waiting for a Norman Tebbit type. You want a... Or David Cameron. There was a, there was a yes. thing, David Cameron, yes. you know, fussing about an old relic. Yeah. Out, Dragging you know, him back. Broken to, away from the... the yeah. Well, once again, a stand-up comedian and a hilarious columnist are funnier than uh, the Labour Party's <laughs> joke writers. He's got to, he's got, the, the joke writer's even written something that's OK. Why, when he's about to deliver the line, does he throw in Mr Speaker at the top? And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Even if he'd had a good gag, he's killed it with that. Yeah. But that's enough about... Um, it's... But that's enough about is also such a it's like it's when somebody goes um at the end of a not very good joke. But, uh, it's, it's like putting meanwhile in a news story to link the two unconnected yeah. parts of it together. What my favourite for doing that was always elsewhere. Elsewhere. <laughs> Here's he, some news. Then uh, elsewhere. And you also have he's you practice the joke. Has he not? You know, William Hague always talks about that practicing the joke again in front of a room. Has 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 Keir done that joke? But uh, enough about the Tory party in front of a room full of, of cronies who all laughed. It makes me angry that you've got that close to a joke and not, not worked on it better. Uh, that what, said, what, all we said was they'd talk about the marbles and about immigration, and frankly, yeah. Giles and I have nailed it already, yeah, so absolutely. we might as well go home. Well done. You can do the rest of it on Well, your Matt own. and I are having lunch, so we can't go <laughs> yeah, home. We've got to get through Fair somehow. Um, uh, so he asks about, he points out that migration is uh, at a record high, uh, and then um, Richie Sunak says, yes, it is. It's really high. It's terrible business. Well, not just that. It's, he's going to be crystal clear about he's it, He's going to be crystal clear. Just as he's been crystal clear with his cabinet about what he's going to do about, um, uh, you know, illegal immigration, uh, not. Um, we're still waiting, aren't we? Um, and that's the problem with all this. Um, you know, we're less than a year from a general election and the people behind him are getting quite antsy about it. And frankly, this is always going to be difficult terrain for the Labour Party. Um, you know, Sunak's comeback is right. Labour opposes most of the tough measures that they have suggested. And, you know, the one time Starmer talked about doing something proactive, he then had to recant it, that the idea of doing some kind of deal with the EU, uh, you know, he, he withdrew from that a couple of days later because it was embarrassing to him. But the fact that Labour feels able to attack on immigration ought to tell the Tory party something. But And also, um, could we just explain um, what the, the secret deal with the EU is that well, he talked about in response accusing Labour? Labour's view seems to be that if you turn up and are nice to Brussels that they will help you stop um, the flow of migrants through Europe to Britain's borders. Now anyone who's paid close attention to this knows that a lot of other countries are taking in far more people than we are. Um, so he sees some kind of Europe-wide deal, which is not inherently stupid um, uh, as a way forward but the Tories calculated that that would uh, lead to 130,000 extra people coming here. If there was some kind of distributional deal based on population, we would have to accept more people than we have been. Um, and they said that's what it would mean and Labour said, oh, no, we didn't mean that. So, you know. But even, given that the legal migration is running it, net migration is, what, 700 and, what was it last week, 65,000? Something like that. Uh, you know, 100,000 doesn't sound that many. 
Well, except it gets you... Well, it gets you even it gets higher. You even higher. It's very hard to start saying, well, your plan's going to meet even more people. But again, Sunak uses this up. phrase, we need to get it back to sustainable levels. Now, previous Prime Ministers, when they were asked what that was, used to trot out this slightly silly tens of thousands line, which I think most economists say is nonsense. But it'd be interesting to know if Starmer pushes him on what he thinks a sustainable number is. It is it, you know, Because pre-Brexit, it was about 250,000, I think. Yeah. Um, certainly, it'd come under 300,000 um, a year. Um I think most members of the public, if asked, would say that was too high. Um, they certainly think 700 plus is too high. So I don't know what Sunak thinks is sustainable. Well, but let's, well maybe we'll find out. Stand by with your marble sound effect. Any mention of marble? Very good. Uh, we'll go back to the House of Commons. It's question two from Keir Starmer. <laughs> Mr Speaker, never mind the British Museum. It's the Prime Minister who's obviously lost his marbles. Yeah. <laughs> Speaker, the Greek Prime Minister, the Greek Prime Minister came to London to meet him, a fellow NATO member, an economic ally, one of our most important partners in tackling illegal immigration. But instead of using that meeting to discuss those serious issues, he tried to humiliate him and cancelled at the last minute. Why such small politics? Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, of course, of course, we're always happy to discuss important topics of substance with our allies, like tackling illegal migration or indeed strengthening our security. But when it was clear that the purpose of a meeting was not to discuss substantive issues for the future, but rather to grandstand and relitigate issues of the past, it wasn't appropriate. But furthermore, 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 when specific commitments and specific assurances on that topic were made to this country and then were broken, it may seem alien to him, but my view is when people make commitments, they should keep them. That's, he sort of doubled down on his insult to the Greek Prime Minister, didn't he? Yeah. That was surprising. Should we do... Sorry, I've just, my bell's just been delivered. Oh. Uh, yeah, you've good. needed your bell. Uh, but let's, let's start, first of all, with the marbles joke. Was that, a, that was a better... It was I mean, it so was... bad, it was almost good. Yeah, there we are. But it was a very dad, dad joke delivery, wasn't but it? But maybe that's better. Maybe if it's too complicated, he mucks it up. Yeah, I mean, it got sort of jeering loss. cheers, didn't it? There were some Labour people sort of semi-enjoying it and some Tories calling for more because it was poor. But, you know, it was, yeah, it was fine. It's, it better than the first, it's better than mucking up a good joke at the start. Yeah. It does also, but it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that Keir would ever say. He's, yeah. n- he's not a pun meister, is he? That's not what he would do with his conversation. Um, it's, I'm wondering if we were going to get all Greek to me, one of those ones. Or well, some, well, let's we'll see. We'll write these down. What do we else, get that? What else have I have? Some plate smashing, some calamari. Plate smashing, yeah. Uh, what else do the Greeks do? <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot. I think that's why <laughs> Rishi didn't bother to meet him. I, I wonder if Rishi will respond with how dealing with immigration is it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. Very good um, marathon, not a sprint. Um, now uh, we talked. We've talked of the past couple of weeks. I think the, the thing that prompted you to get in touch, Charles, was a couple of weeks ago. We were saying how bad Keir Starmer's mm. actual questions were, and his question there was why such small politics. Yeah. I mean, I think that's not a question. It's it's not much of a question, but I do think it plants the seed that this is a tiny little man that he's up against, and that kind of you know, uh, I think sort of subtly suggesting that 
Sunak's a bit of a weed, yeah. and a bit of a weakling, and a bit sort of, you know, he can do that politically by saying, oh, the bloke couldn't even take a meeting with this fellow because he was frightened of being asked about some marbles. But on the other you know, one of the questions people ask me most when I'm sort of out there doing, addressing different groups or whatever is, you know, is he as small as he looks? Is he short? And I say, he's not short, he's just tiny. Everything's, like, shrunk. He's a very, very small human being, Rishi Sunak. And I think there's a slight sort of sense that people like their leaders to be six foot two and have a bit of a jawline. And uh, insofar as that matters, talking about see, small politics, I think, as a gets close, you there. Speaking as a close personal friend of Keir, yeah. Keir <laughs> is actually also small. And I, I, as a person of five foot nine, I, I am there to police the barrier. I'm the person that you need to stand next to people because if you're shorter than me, you're shorter than average. And if you're taller than me, you're taller than average. And Keir is definitely only five foot eight, same as, same as Boris was, but he hasn't got quite such a small personality. And then Keir's got this massive head, which you feel that you could take the top off and lots of rishis would climb out of it, which would be a very Greek... Oh, we've got a Greek thing. His head is a bit like he's already on Mount Rushmore, isn't it, Keir? There's a sort of slightly <laughs> hair, stone sort of quality about that. Mr Whippy hair. I tell you what I noticed, by the way, when it came to the immigration thing, that this is a bit, a bit of a political point for me to make, as if I were a genuine observer. He lacks Suella Braverman. When they bring up immigration, Suella Braverman... I can't remember whether you can say bat poo. Now, you can say bat... You, yes, you, you can. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bat, 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 whatever comes out of a bat. Braverman needs to have said something completely bat poo during yeah. the week for him to roll back on. Yeah, if he yeah. hasn't got... She needs to have said, it's going to be zero. It's going to be zero. And it's going to, it's going to be negative. We're going to start sending them home on Wednesday. And, and then anything that he says to track back looks, looks like he's in control, doesn't he? He hasn't got that now. And also, he hasn't got her sitting on the front bench nodding, which he used no. to do very enthusiastically regardless no. of what was being said. Well, let's go back there because we've only got through two questions so far. Let's Question number three from Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I discussed with the Greek Prime Minister the economy, security, immigration. I also told him we wouldn't change the law regarding the marbles. It's not that difficult, Prime Minister. The reality is simple. He has no plan on boat crossings and migration is at a record high. A record high. His policy is that companies can pay workers from abroad 20% less than British workers. That has contributed to those record-high immigration levels, hasn't it? Mr Speaker, he talks about the boat crossings. He's failed to notice illegal boat crossings are down by a third this year, Mr Speaker, thanks to every one of the actions that we've taken that he opposed every single time they were raised. But look, Mr Speaker, no one will be surprised that he's backing an EU country over Britain. Just this last week he was asked... Just this last week... Just this last week, he was asked which song best sums up the Labour Party. What did he come up with? Well, Mr Speaker, he showed his true colours and chose Ode to Joy, literally the anthem of the European Union. And he will back, he will back Brussels over Britain every single time. It's like gear change there. A little bit of politics creeping in now. <laughs> A little bit of political point scoring. Um, I mean, great, but first of all, a great moment for Keir Starmer just to be able to say, I discussed with the Greek Prime Minister the economy, security and immigration. You know, that, in terms of presenting himself as a Prime Minister in waiting, that's a great thing for him to be able to say. It was, and it was, it was kind of impressive. But he, but he then got to the point of what the Greeks could afford to pay so-and-so, leading you to the what does a Grecian earn hey. joke <laughs> possibility. <laughs> and, and he's missed it. So I'm, I'm just grieving for the absence of that. And then a total gear change into... 
uh, he he won't back Britain. He's always more interested in EU countries, which reminds me of the fact he was on the radio at the weekend and said he liked Ode to Joy. Uh, yes. I mean, look, there will be parts of the country where that is not a bad attack line. Yeah. My sense listening to Rishi Sunak was that that was no more authentic than Keir Starmer doing puns, to be perfectly honest. Um you hear when he does his sort of lines and he doesn't quite believe in them that he kind of he'll sort of say the first one and then be straight into the second before he's even paused for breath and it's just a kind of it's a sort of case of them tumbling out of his mouth because he knows they need to and you know that that whole stuff about it's down by a third um great but you know most of the Tory right thinks the public's not interested in yeah. the fact that it's come down by a third. They want it stopped. Um, and boasting about how it's come down by a third just reminds people that there's still two-thirds of it sitting there. Um, and he just he sort of seemed, seemed to me to sort of gabble his way through all of that in a way that made me think he wasn't wholly convinced by his own argument. Patricia on the uh, YouTube channel says, Ode to Joy does it for me. Does it do it for you, John? Well, it's a very fine piece of music, isn't it? Well, it's, I mean, it, yes, it's, it's fine. It's Beethoven, isn't it? I yeah. mean, they, they could have had a goes in for choosing a German, I suppose. He could have. Did they ask? What, what does Rishi kind of music? I think they Rishi asked for. Like? I think he Rishi on, likes Michael Bublé, so FM, I'm not sure that Ode to Joy was the wrong answer. But really, in the same way that Gordon Brown liked the Arctic Monkeys. No, no, but no, he, no, he really, really, really likes yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's all Jimmy yeah. Cooper, and Michael Bublé. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was asked what music sums up the Labour Party, and he said Ode to Joy, I mean, which. You'd have thought that someone could have advised him not to say the one thing, which is the... Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's a silly answer the if you're theme. the potentially incoming Prime Just Minister with a problem in leave seats. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, very good. Uh, let's try and uh, keep cracking on. Uh, this is question number four from Keir Starmer. So let, let, me get, let me get this straight. The Prime Minister is now saying that meeting the Prime Minister of Greece is somehow supporting the EU instead of discussing serious issues. Yeah. He's just got dug further into that hole that he's made for himself. And ever, rather than deal with the facts, he's prosecuting his one-man war on reality. And that, that reality is stuck. Under this government, a bricklayer from overseas can be paid £2,500 less than somebody who's already here. A plasterer, £3,000 less. An engineer, £6,000 less. The list goes on. It's absurd. Labour would scrap his perverse wage-cutting policy. Why won't he? Mr Speaker, as I said, we have taken significant measures and will bring forward more. And indeed, as the ONS themselves said, more recent estimates indicate a slowing of immigration as a result of the things that we're doing. But I am surprised, Mr Speaker, to hear him now taking this new position, because I've got a quote here from a pushy young shadow immigration minister who said, and I directly quote this person, he told this House that limits on skilled migrants are, and I quote, a form of economic vandalism. Who could possibly have taken such a bizarre position to only then U-turn? It will come as no surprise to anybody that it was him! Well, there we are. Somebody's been doing some research. And uh, that was in March 2016 in a Westminster Hall debate, by the look of it, uh, that Keir Starmer said that when he was a, uh, a junior backbencher. Sort of fun, junior frontbencher. Junior frontbencher. He hadn't been in the Commons very long. Uh, so it's interesting. So this story that was on the front of the Times today about the call to close visa route for cheaper foreign staff, Labour have committed to scrap it. And so it's, it's now at the point where if the Tories do end up scrapping it, as it looks like they might do, 
uh, they're going to look like they're just following Labour's lead. Uh, yes, and Stan will be able to claim that, but you know, ultimately they're the government. If they do something, they're still you know the ones doing it, aren't they? Um, I mean, really, we've reached a point, haven't we? Where um, where would you normally be at this point, Giles, when you're on your strolling around? Where the point where Tim and I even lose interest in what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> I would Which be texting you saying, sharpen up, this is my main hour of radio of the week, Matt. I would be on the way to lunch uh, and I'd be listening to this. And I, with the, you know, when I got in touch with you, I couldn't believe that in such a bad week for Rishi Keir was landing nothing yeah. at all. And, you know, I do like him. I've, I've wanted the Prime Minister to be someone who lives within three streets of me now for 20 years. It was Jeremy Corbyn lived up the road. It was uh, Macy, <laughs> Macy with the two kitchens. Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband, there you go. He was up there. Uh, kept, kept, this now, finally, I want Keir in. I want him to land punches. I, I'm all right with um I'm here for one one man war on reality. Yeah. That sounds like a sort they of matrix loved seven, that, doesn't they? Yeah. Rachel Reeves thought that was very funny. Very, she was having funny. a good old time. You chuckle need to have that. Rishi in the big coat that you know that Neo wore in, in Matrix and sort of, I think that's yeah. that's something. Well maybe if his trousers don't reach his shoes, his coat could. <laughs> a weeny weeny little coat, a little <laughs> action man Darth Vader coat. <laughs> Okay, what are we up to now? Oh, we've got two more to go, so let's try and do it, fit them in. Uh, this is question number five from Keir Stubber. Mr Speaker, there's only one party, one party that's lost control of the borders, and they're sitting right there. And this is a government not just in turmoil, in open revolt. The immigration minister thinks the prime minister is failing because apparently nobody will listen to his secret plan. The former Home Secretary thinks he's failing because of his magical thinking. The current Home Secretary thinks he's failing. He even took time out of his busy schedule insulting people in the North East to admit he agrees with Labour. The Prime Minister seems to be the only person on the Tory benches without his own personal immigration plan. Clearly, his own side don't have any faith in him. Why should the public... Mr Speaker, it's, it's really a bit rich to hear about this from someone who described all immigration law as racist, who literally said it was a mistake to control immigration. We have taken steps and we will take further steps, which is why recent estimates of immigration show that it's slowing. It's why next year the immigration health surcharge will increase by over two-thirds. It's why immigration fees are going up by up to 35%. But, Mr Speaker, one of his own members of his front bench said that having a target isn't sensible. Right? It's no surprise, Mr Speaker, to have people like this, because this is the person, Mr Speaker, while we're taking all these measures that he opposed, this is the person who stood on a platform and promised to defend free movement. Uh, so, uh, Keir Starmer said there is a racist undercurrent which permeates all immigration law in 1988. Do you think everything that you've ever said is there, a, is there a statute of limitations? Do you think, Giles? I think in 1988 I was still saying vaguely palatable things. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's the stuff from 2012, and, and yeah, yeah. no, holding into account for the things that's ridiculous. That was the thing with Boris, which was there, but for the grace of God, with all of us, was things he'd said as a columnist yes. when he was staring down the barrel of a deadline with something that he'd got to get a laugh out. So he said, "Please tell it, us not you're not putting yourself forward for elective office at some it's point." It's the Giles. main reason I can't. <laughs> The main reason I can't. Maybe you have a word with Keir. You could stand in Jeremy Corbyn's seat. 
Do you think up in Archway? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, yeah, I used to live four doors down from this from this harmless communist MP. I was in in Whitehall Park. He's, he doesn't live there now, so I I was at thirty two, and I think he was at thirty eight, and it was sort of funny. But was uh, that the house where he always had the bin bags outside? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. he was leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah, that, um, but uh, it, it, it was. No, I think I think with someone who was. I think if you're going to have rules of fairness, you'd say it can only be things you said since you were you were an MP, since you sought office, I suppose. Uh, to to go back to things that he said, the idea that he was ever a crazy, a crazy shooting from the hip kind of yeah, verbal yeah, yeah. hooligan is ridiculous. He would have thought everything through even in 1988, wouldn't he? Also, I mean, it's possible. And I don't know because I don't know what he was talking about, but it's possible that there was something in 1988 which was bad, which he was talking about, but that's now been changed. That that you know that was what 35 years ago. Well, can, there's also it is true. I mean, it, you know, in any debate about immigration, it is, immigration is to a degree about race. It is people of a different... I mean, sometimes it's just different nationality. There is an element of it. And the, the thing you have to be careful about when talking about immigration is careful not to be racist. But there's always... It's, it's almost impossible to say there should be fewer people coming to these shores without sounding a bit racist, you could tackle it. Here's one other thing. On to, his, he ended, his actual question, Keir, yeah. was... Uh, why should the public trust you, right? I, I, I'm having to write it on the You've desk. You've written yeah. it on the desk. In Stabilo <laughs> Boss, because I didn't bring a pen. Uh, and I found, The only other thing I found was somebody's lippy I found down there. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, that? I don't know. It's just, that look good with does it look nice? I don't know. It's, it's, there's not much of it left, so she's okay. tossed it down there. Well, very good. Um, but yeah, it was the, he said something about trust. Why should the British public trust you? And back in the day, when I was, when I was in the gallery, when I was doing the parliamentary oh. sketch, when it was William Hague against Tony Blair, uh, they used to answer each other's questions. I mean, they, they yeah. would tell all sorts of fibs. And, but that, that, that's a surely a gimme. If he's just asking the Prime Minister, why should the British public trust you? He completely ignored. Why doesn't he tell him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that an opportunity? But also, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible... When people say, oh, they never get an answer to the questions, because that's not, that's not a proper question. No. So don't be surprised if he just ignores it and goes off and does something else. Uh, right, let's try and get uh, question number six in there. That's the last one. Uh, from Keir Starmer. <laughs> on their watch... Migration has just trebled. And he's giving the house a lecture about targets. He's lost in La La Land. Yeah. <laughs> that, there could be few joke? experiences sure. more haunting for the members opposite than hearing this Prime Minister claim that he's going to sort out a problem. Yeah. First, he said he'd get the NHS waiting list down. Uh, they went up. Unabashed by that, he said he'd get control of immigration. It's gone up. Following that experience, he turned his hand to bringing taxes down. And, would you believe it, the tax burden is now going to be higher than ever. It is ironic that he's suddenly taken such a keen interest in Greek culture when he's clearly become the man with the reverse Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to... Maybe the Home Secretary could help me out here. Rubbish. So, will the Prime Minister do the country a favour? We neglect, we'll have to check the tape James again, uh, Mr. Speaker. Very unhappy. So, will the Prime job. Minister do the country a favour, warn us what he's planning next, so we can prepare ourselves for the disaster that will inevitably follow? Yeah. Mr. Mr. Speaker, at the beginning of the year, we said, Mr. Speaker. Prime Minister. Oh. Mr Speaker, at the beginning of the Didn't year we said we would halve inflation and this government has delivered. Yeah. Easing the burden on the
the cost of living for families everywhere. But we know his plans, Mr Speaker, all the way through that. What did he do? Back inflationary pay rises. He talked about welfare, no controls for welfare, and borrowing £28 billion a year that would just make the situation worse. He mentioned tax, Mr Speaker. Just this past week, we've delivered the biggest tax cuts since the 1980s for millions of people and businesses, increased pensions and benefits, and this week secured £30 billion of new investment for this country. So he can keep trying, Mr Speaker, to talk... Oh, oh, can I just say to the Shadow Foreign Secretary, order, just a little bit quieter, please. I want to hear. Right, romantistic. <laughs> what on earth happened there? Oh, I don't know. He so sort of cut the, him off just uh, while he at, was at his saying, peroration. While he was saying Britain isn't listening, they yeah. turned off his microphone because yeah. David Lammy was shouting. And then instead of going back to Sunak, he seems to have just gone, I've had enough of this, sat yeah, down and yeah. called the great Raymond Chisty instead. Um, well, that was a decent... A better joke. There. That was a better I, joke, and it yeah. required a little bit of nimbleness, didn't it? He yeah. had to kind of tiptoe his way through that, you yeah, know. Timing. He, the, well, he the, said the reverse Midas touch was sort of OK, and it, then he said, turns two, and you wonder, oh, is he going to say turns to rubbish? And then the pause and the, perhaps the Home Secretary can help me out was... Yeah. That funny. was good. Yeah, yeah, James yeah. Cleverly looked very Much funnier than it. the reverse Midas touch, which they all went, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is amazing, well, brilliant. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, James Cleverly started heckling him and he said, we'll have to check the tape again, I think. Yes, think exactly, and that was that was good. But if, whether that was improv or not, I don't know. So this is all to do with obviously whether or not James, uh, James Cleverly last week... Well, last week was overheard on the microphone... Um, uh, the Labour Party took it that he was being rude about the constituency of yes. um, uh, the the MP who'd been on his feet. Cleverly insists that it was um, the MP he was calling the S word rather than uh, the constituency itself. But it was the S word whole. Yes, he was calling it a a a, a S hole, and that's not a, not a thing you ever call a person. Really, it's only a place, and it's this bizarre morality of of Parliament where it's worse to insult a place a, a place than a person. Yeah. Uh, which of course isn't true in law, in journalistic law. If you've said you've got, you can't libel a place, a constituency, but you can libel a person. You can get dragged to Liverpool if you do it too badly, though. If Boris <laughs> Johnson discovered to his cost. I mean, I think just one other reflection on, on the last two. Um, I mean, I think uh, yes, I think Starmer's clearly come out of this ahead. Um, but I think the reason Sunak can bring up some of the stuff he's said in the past um, is because people still don't quite know what Stalin was actually going to do about all this stuff. What does he really think about immigration? Did he think that... He thought that in 1988. What does he think now? Because, you know, they have opposed a lot of the stuff the government's been trying to do whilst trying to have a field day with the fact that the numbers are still very high. And, you know... The other question people tend to ask these days is, you know, they're all expecting Labour to win, but people aren't quite sure what Starmer's about still, particularly having, on an issue like this. Having said that, his list of, uh, his sort of, you know, I don't want to worry you anyone, but Rishi Sunak's about to make something his priority. He made waiting lists going down a priority that went up. He said tackling immigration was a priority, that went up. He said getting taxes down was a priority, that's gone up. You know, that that is a riff. You could see that in an election campaign ad. Yeah, totally. You know? But they, I mean, they were the. He had, I mean, I don't want to speak for him. He did have the inflation one, which suddenly yeah, yeah. became his main priority yes, as soon exactly. as that went yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. That was the only one that really mattered. Which I obviously, when it went in and up, was definitely nothing to do with him. That was all to, to do with the international yeah. international events. Oh, yeah. oh, so overall, who do we think won that? Oh, I think I think Keir. I think my man from the sauna was all over it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's he won it so well. He's kicking back and yeah. 
in the sauna. Lara Spirit is here, Times Red Box editor, uh, along with Giles Cohen and Tim Shipman. Uh, Lara, overall, how were the best of the West? They were pretty boring, and then at the end there was... No, no but I told you, you're supposed to come in. You have in to and... listen to what I'm saying. Okay. At the end, there was a flurry of pretty interesting contributions. Well done, very good, very, very good. Very important contributions. Um, we're going to go first to Tulip Sadiq, who asked a question that went on for a little bit longer than people in the house would have hoped, but which did get quite an interesting uh, and robust answer for Rishi Sunak about this uh, that explosive claim that he was comfortable with people dying during COVID. So take a listen to this. I quote, Rishi thinks... Just let people die, and that's okay. This was reportedly the view of the Prime Minister of COVID during late 2020, as recorded by the then Chief Scientific Advisor in his diary. This came to light last week in the COVID inquiry, and I was shocked that Downing Street didn't categorically deny it. So could I ask the Prime Minister today, how is it that people who were closest to this issue, who he worked with day in, day out, at the top of government, how on earth did these people get the impression that the Prime Minister was okay with people in our country dying? Minister, I think he's got the question, Prime Minister. <laughs> Mr Speaker, as the Honourable Lady knows, there is an ongoing inquiry into COVID, uh, and it's right that that process followed, and I look forward to providing my own evidence. But if she had taken the time to actually read the evidence submitted to the inquiry, she will have seen that the person she mentioned, the Chief Science Advisor, confirmed that he did not hear me say that, and that's because, and that's because I didn't. There we are. Well, there we go. Finally, a denial. A denial. I mean, a lot of Tory advisers I know were banging their heads against walls about this, wondering what on earth Downing Street were up to, letting this story just run for two days. Um, they said, oh, well, we've been told by the lawyers that uh, we mustn't comment on the evidence as it happens. But if you can't deny that you wanted to kill people, what can you do in politics? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't even a, you know, it wasn't a direct quote. It was Valance quoting something that Dominic Cummings had said to him, characterising the views of Rishi Sunak. Um, and, yeah, the fact that they were so flat-footed about it was is pretty extraordinary. I've just had another message from one of the people who was moaning, going, finally, they've, you know, he's yeah. actually said, it wasn't me, Gov. Is there a possibility that they, it was such a kind of cool and deadly thing that Rishi said? They, did, they wanted to give people 48 hours to imagine him being so, <laughs> so kind of outspoken and murderous as yeah. to say something like that before going, no, he's the same boring bean counter you always thought he was. Do you think he's going to take two days, if they, every question they ask him, it, um, the COVID inquiry, is going to take two days to come up with his answer? Uh, well, we could be there for some time. Um, I liked the way as well that he started his answer to that by saying the Honourable Lady knows that there's an inquiry. Yeah, yes, she does. She's yes, just she's asked you about it. At some length. At some length. Who are we going to next, Lara? Now we're going to John Hayes. Uh, very good. Oh. Uh, go back to John Hayes. The Whisperer, which is obviously not so much a useful categorisation anymore. Explain, but explain what you mean by Suella Whisperer for sorry, the benefit of... Sorry, so the, uh, until recently for Home Secretary Suella Braverman um, was known to be close to uh, John Hayes, who is a figure on the right of the party, one of the leading lights on the kind of um, the more right-wing proposals for stopping the boats. Uh, you'll be unsurprised to hear that he asked about this question today. Obviously, this is another area where uh, MPs and indeed journalists were expecting something concrete uh, from Rishi Sunak uh, around not just uh, Rwanda, but also around legal migration. Unsurprising that John Hayes makes this intervention today. So take a listen. John Hayes! Uh, the draw. Oh, that draw. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. That 1.3 million migrants over a period of two years is a catastrophe for Britain. It is obvious to everyone, apart from guilt-ridden bourgeois liberals and greed-driven globalists. Yeah. So, uh, given that the same kind of people are stymieing the Prime Minister's Stop the Boats campaign, will he bring urgent measures <coughs> forward to deal with legal migration? And in terms of the bill that he's promised, will he ensure it is exactly in the form recommended by his own Immigration Minister? Uh, well. Mr Speaker, I'm, I'm pleased to have the Honourable Gentleman's advice and support as in all our measures to tackle both legal and illegal migration. As I said, we are reviewing the recommendations of the MAC and will be bringing forward measures on top of the very significant restrictions that we've already announced on student dependence. And when it comes to stopping illegal migration, I've been crystal clear, we will bring forward legislation that makes it unequivocally the case that Rwanda is safe and there will be no more ability of our domestic courts to block flights to Rwanda, and that's what our legislation will ensure. I mean, saying John Hayes was he's happy to have John Hayes's advice and support may have been the best joke of the entire <laughs> BMQs, to be honest. We had a double um, dose of crystal clear there as well. There are something like 28 different backbench groups on the Tory right, and John Hayes is in charge of about 26 of them. So, um, you know, that came with the full venom of uh, the furies of, uh, of the Tory right. I'd, um, I'd never seen his face before. Though. John Hayes. Yeah, he, it reminded me the the famous um, Charlie Brooker line about Anne Widdicombe, that her mouth looked like a haunted cave in Poland. So that, <laughs> <laughs> he, he had an element of that sort yeah. of trolls crawling about yeah. in it, didn't he? Just Sorry, superficial observation for you. Well, which are you, Giles? Are you one of the guilt-ridden bourgeois liberals? Or no, one of, bourgeois. You, he said bourgeois. bourgeois. Guilt-ridden bourgeois <laughs> liberals. Yeah, I suppose I, I probably am one of them. Yeah, quite right. So he also sure. said a catastrophe, he, I noticed. He's not a, not a... That haunted cave in Poland is spewing all sorts of... <laughs> Uh, turns out Rishi Sunak has used crystal clear 15 times in the House of Commons. Uh, he well, just use... today? No, 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 that's why a double dose. The no. last time we had a double dose was the 13th of July. This is the sort of analysis you don't get anywhere else. <laughs> this is like Test Match Special. Yeah, but with no cake. <laughs> You're the non-bearded wonder. Uh, what are we... Your moustache, Giles, is that a Movember thing or just... <laughs> Or is it, or just you're a just. complete thing? Yeah. Um, do you know what it was? Because was... a lot of people on YouTube are enjoying your moustache. Are they? Yeah. Good. Well, it, it's. Uh, I was sort of. I'm going for a kind of desperate sort of Mexican sort of narco's look. Right. Uh, although I've got, I've got. A, I'm having a haircut on Friday, so I'll, I'll probably go a bit more Freddie Mercury then. But what happened was I was trimming my beard down about three weeks ago, and I'm always tempted to leave the moustache, and then I realised we were going into note this November. Mm. Uh, prostate awareness and all that kind of thing, very aware of mine. Uh, and I thought, I'll trim it <laughs> off and, and I'll leave it to grow longer and see how it, see if I can get uh, some drama on the radio out of it. Well, there or, we are. Uh, well, if you want yeah. to see it, you've only got about three or four minutes left to go onto YouTube and see uh, Giles' uh, moustache. While they're doing that, Lara... <laughs> We have a really important question about hospitals from, from Ed Davey. Ed Davey. Hey. Perfect. You know, leave them wanting more, Lars. <laughs> um, I actually think this is quite important. Obviously, it's a Conservative manifesto pledge. Um, we've already had, you know, damning reports from the National Audit Office making clear that this uh, promise is probably not going to be realised before the next election. Uh, nonetheless, the hospitals that Ed Davey uh, highlights are interesting. Uh, at least one of them is in a constituency that the Lib Dems will be hoping to win in the next election. Uh, and I think you'll hear this again and again from the Lib Dems before we head to the polls. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Three years ago, the government made a commitment to 40 new hospitals 
and significant upgrades to hospitals in most need. But today, many schemes are badly delayed. The Royal Berkshire, stuck at the development stage with not a single pound transferred for construction. Harrogate Hospital, still waiting on £20 million for urgent upgrades after RAC was discovered. And there are 25 more schemes, Mr Speaker. So will the Prime Minister explain why his government is happy to let patients, doctors and nurses suffer for years in such unfit and unsafe conditions? Mr Speaker, we are delivering 40 hospitals by 2030. Good progress is already being made and that programme is being backed by over £20 billion of investments. Three schemes are already open, two are opening this year and 16 are in construction or work has begun to prepare the site. Uh, it is absolutely right though, uh, within that, that we prioritise RAC hospitals uh, as part of that. That required a reprioritisation, but that was the appropriate thing to do to ensure safety. But all patients and staff are already benefiting from some of the improvements that we've made, which comes on top of the largest capital programme for the NHS in its history, rolling out community diagnostic centres, urgent treatment centres and surgical hubs right across the country. Sarah Dines. There we are. So three hospitals. Yes. 40, uh, 40 and a reprioritization because rack was found in quite a few of them so it's not i think that's not a massively promising answer if they head into the election with that one it might need some work but also tim a reminder that uh the lib dem you know the lib dems know where they want to win seats and will latch on to local issues in order to do that and if they've got a target seat with a rack riddled hospital or a hospital that's not being rebuilt bob jonkel uh, yeah, home and hose. Um, you would think. Um, I'm just sad that Raymond Shishti's question was obviously not interesting not enough to take part in the best of the about? rest. We I even actually, heard him called. It actually was um, quite an interesting question. It was about Islamophobia and how Rishi Sunak hadn't taken the action that he oh. seemingly had promised Rishi some time ago. And so you, that had that, had been... you had that and you still went for the Ed Davey question. <laughs> <laughs> that is so nasty. <laughs> well, the good news is 75 people have tuned into the YouTube on the property. It shot up. As a promise the, of seeing your moustache. What, what else we promised to show them? Get in that sauna. Lots of people said they love the Tash, Giles. There oh, we yeah? are. Please ask Giles back. He is the missing marble. There we are. We've got the marble. Thank you very much. Yeah. Do you want, they want to know about collar and cuff, do they? I don't know if it's. That's uh, not. That's not that's, <laughs> <laughs> we're so close to getting to the end of this without <laughs> getting into trouble. Giles, uh, lovely to see you. It was fantastic to be here. And we are going for lunch. We are going right? for lunch. Because you've shown... This is like bring your son to work day. You've yeah. shown me all yeah. the glories, the wonders of Tim and Lara. What a, what a, what a thing. It's like zoo radio from the good old days. I think I'm taking... Lunch. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can we come. All come. Are you coming? I'd probably better do some work. It is work. Don't say that. For 25 <laughs> years, I've been saying, I'm sorry, darling, I've now got to go to a seafood restaurant in Shoreditch. And then she goes, well, you have. No, it's work. It's, work. it's, work. it's, it's work. only Wednesday, Tim. You work on a Sunday paper. You don't I know, but I've got to days. write for News Review this week and they seem to have extraordinarily early deadlines. But you only write 9,000 words for them. You can... We can we'll, we'll help you write it. We'll help you yeah. write it. Come on, we'll all go. It's a seafood restaurant. Oysters. God, it's like much Chris more Evans relevant than... the 90s, isn't it? Going straight out after the show. <laughs> Uh, right, but lovely to see you, Giles. Lovely to see you, Lara. What time will you be in people's inboxes? 3pm. 3 o'clock. Time subscribers will get Lara doing uh, PMQs Unpacked in your inbox, and Tim will be in your Sunday Times on Sunday. And that's all we've got time for on this week's PMQs Unpacked. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And don't forget to head over to How to Win an Election, our brand new podcast. Peter Manderson, Polly McKenzie, Daniel Finkelstein, this week discussing how...
how do you deal with rebels on your own side? What should Richie Sunak do? What should Keir Starmer do? And some war stories as well, including Polly McKenzie trying to explain Nick Clegg's decisions on tuition fees. Head over to How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.